Chapter Seventeen, Part One, of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Wainwright. Autobiography memories and experiences volume one by moncure d conway chapter seventeen part one concerning the trouble that rent my washington congregation and overcast my bright skies i can now speak with the calmness of a disinterested witness the union war obliterated those painful differences though they broke my heart i have long remembered them with as many reproaches against myself as against my opponents i had made up my mind to pursue a quiet though not silent course concerning slavery and not to break completely with my beloved virginia I did not despair of being able to influence some of the leaders in the South. Some of my attempts were indeed discouraging. My grand-uncle, Justice Daniel, with whom I always had affectionate relations, was a man of logical intellect, and apparently without dislike of my religious heresies, but when in his house in Washington, I ventured to say something favorable to the anti-slavery sentiment. He closed the subject by saying, I fear those people are very wicked. I frequently met the free soil congressman whose aim was to exclude slavery from all the federal domain. I thus had opportunities for acquiring knowledge of the sentiments of good men on every side of the formidable issue, and was certain of their equal sincerity. Amid these opposing principles, I found myself at the age of twenty-three, conscientiously poised without clear sight of a practical plan on which the force put in my hand might descend. I will mention here an incident which I was young enough to regard as of importance. In conversing with Senator Hale, I mentioned the fact that in Virginia it was the most scholarly and philosophical young men who discarded old Virginia principles and advocated slavery per se. I was presently appealed to by some of Hale's friends in New Haven to persuade some competent southerner to deliver in that city a lecture in defense of slavery on moral and sociological grounds they were willing to pay liberally the invitation was from anti-slavery persons some of them relatives of mrs stowe i fixed on george fitzhugh a lawyer of port royal on the rappahannock who had written an able book on the failure of free society. 
through my uncle judge eustace conway the consent of fitzhugh was secured and he declined payment in new haven fitzhugh was a guest of samuel foote at windy no the subjoined letter shows the gulf that yawned between the northern and the southern mind port royal virginia twelve april eighteen fifty five dear g c i am pleased at the interest you take in my book and lecture and regret you could not accompany me when i arrived at new haven i learned that wendell phillips was detained in boston by a suit and could not be in new haven for a week i postponed my lecture and visited garrett smith at peterborough in the meantime although my lecture was double the usual length and a metaphysical and statistical argument instead of an evening entertainment as they are used to it was often applauded and listened to politely throughout i remained two days thereafter and received much attention from professor silliman and other leading citizens everybody seemed pleased to meet me in the streets and though none agreed with me all liked to talk of the new lines i presented joseph sheldon jr the manager of the lyceum and samuel foote esq uncle to mrs stowe were peculiarly kind sheldon said no lecture had ever occasioned so much talk and speculation i met a sister of mrs stowe mrs perkins at mr foote's and was much pleased with her but i was carrying coals to newcastle and proving the failure of free society they all admit that but say they have plans of social organization that will cure all defects truly one half of them are atheists seeking to discover a new social science the other half millennial anti-church anti-law and anti-marriage christians who expect christ's kingdom on earth is about to begin the most distinguished of them told me that as a perpetual institution he would prefer slavery to free society as now constituted you can't argue with such men for they see facts in the future to sustain their views i do not believe there is a liberty man in the north who is not a socialist the papers abused me charged me with nonsense but published what i said about the declaration of independence in which all the nonsense was mr jefferson's the northern papers won't notice my book and i am sure it is because they are not ready to answer it phillips declined to answer my lecture his was an eloquent tirade against church and state law and religion it was flat treason and blasphemy nothing else after you read this please hand or send it to rev m d conway of your city i am greatly obliged to him for his complimentary notice of me would also write to him but 
this will answer the same purpose i have already spoken to samuel m janey the most distinguished quaker in virginia with him i consulted and we framed a petition to the virginia legislature to repeal the law which forbade the teaching of slaves to read and to restrict the arbitrary separation of families a few influential signatures were obtained a private reply came from a leading member of the legislature declaring that no such petition could be read in that body that all social systems have evils and those of the south are no greater than the evils of other countries my friend daniel goodloe a north carolinian resident in washington sent to the legislature of his state a similar petition with many signatures with a similar result ah what naive days were those in may eighteen fifty when i first saw daniel webster and heard him sanction the concession of free territories to slavery little did i dream that the great sombre man was inflicting grief on those who would one day be my beloved friends and was bequeathing even to my humble self a heavy burden before me is a correspondence which had then recently taken place between him and dr w h furness which has never been published on january ninth eighteen fifty dr furness wrote to webster dear sir will you pardon this intrusion and the boldness implied in these lines i deprecate the appearance of undertaking to offer counsel to one whom i regard with such sincere admiration but i must bear the folly of the presumption for i cannot resist the impulse that i have long felt to express to you sir my deep conviction that if daniel webster would only throw that great nature which god has given him into the divine cause of human freedom his fellow citizens his fellow men would witness such a demonstration of personal power as it is seldom given to the world to see and yet no one would be more surprised than he you have given us evidence which has filled us all with pride that you were made for great things for far greater things than any office but we do not know sir how much you are capable of you do not know yourself nor in the eternal nature of things can you ever know until with a devotion that makes no stipulation for yourself you give your whole might and mind to the right you once said of a professional friend that when his case was stated it was argued there is no man of whom this can be said with more entire truth than of yourself if taking liberty for your light you cast your broad glance over the history and state of the country if seeing as many think as you yourself could not help seeing how slavery has interfered 
and is interfering not with the property but with the rights the hearts of free men you were then to tell the country in that grand and simple way in which no man living resembles you what you see stating the great case so that it would be argued once for all and for ever you would not only render the whole country north and south the greatest possible service but you would find a compensation in yourself which even your great power could not begin to compute the service of great principles is not a whit more beneficent in its results to others than in its influence on those who undertake it they may possibly witness no results to others they may subject themselves to personal inconvenience to suffering but the redeeming ennobling effect on themselves they cannot miss we have seen again and again how it transfigures ordinary men what then must be its effect on one whom nature has made great but i will not trespass any further except i pray you sir these few words as an expression of the heartiest personal interests of yours faithfully and respectfully w h furness to this came the following reply washington february fifteenth eighteen fifty my dear sir i was a good deal moved i confess by reading your letter of the ninth of january having great regard for your talents and character i could not feel indifferent to what you said when you intimated that there was or might be in me a power to do good not yet exercised or developed it may be so but i fear my dear sir that you overrate not my desire but my power to be useful in my days and generation from my earliest youth i have regarded slavery as a great moral and political evil i think it unjust repugnant to the natural equality of mankind founded only in superior power a standing and permanent conquest of the stronger over the weaker all pretenses of defending it on the ground of difference of races i have ever contemned i have ever said that if the black race is weaker that is a reason against not for its subjection and oppression in a religious point of view i have ever regarded it and spoken of it not as subject to any express denunciation either in the old testament or the new but as opposed to the whole spirit of the gospel and the teachings of jesus christ the religion of jesus christ is a religion of kindness justice and brotherly love but slavery is not kindly affectioned it does not seek another's and not its own it does not let the oppressed go free it is as i have said but a continued act of oppression but then such is the influence of a habit 
of thinking among men that even minds religious and tenderly conscientious such as would be shocked by any single act of oppression or any single exercise of violence and unjust power are not always moved by the reflection that slavery is a continued and permanent violation of human rights but now my dear sir what can be done by me who act only a part in a political life and who have no power over the subject of slavery as it exists in the states of the union i do what i can to restrain it to prevent its spread and diffusion but i cannot disregard those oracles which instruct me not to do evil that good may come i cannot cooperate in breaking up social and political systems on the warmth rather than the strength of a hope that in such convulsion the cause of emancipation may be promoted and even if the end could justify the means i confess i do not see the relevancy of such means to such an end i confess my dear sir that in my judgment confusion conflict embittered controversy violence bloodshed and civil war would only rivet the chains of slavery the more strongly in my opinion it is the mild influences of christianity the softening and melting power of the sun of righteousness and not the storms and tempests of heated controversy that are in the course of these events which in all wise providence overrules to dissolve the iron fetters by which man is made the slave of man the effect of moral causes though sure is slow in two thousand years the doctrines and miracles of jesus christ have converted but a small portion of the human race and among christians even many gross and obvious errors like this of the lawfulness of slavery have still held their ground but what are two thousand years in the great work of the progress of the regeneration and redemption of mankind if we see that the cause is onward and forward as it certainly is in regard to the final abolition of human slavery while we give to it our fervent prayers and aid it by all the justifiable means which we can exercise it seems to me we must leave both the progress and the result in his hands who sees the end from the beginning and whose sight a thousand years are but as a single day i pray you my dear sir accept this hasty product of a half hour of the evening and unread by the writer as a respectful and grateful acknowledgment of your very kind and friendly letter daniel webster twenty days after writing this letter webster made the fatal speech i heard emerson ascribe it to his profound selfishness but it could not have been very profound 
for it was plainly inevitable that it would be universally regarded as a bid for the presidential nomination and he could not fail to lose the confidence of both south and north but the above letter to dr furness suggests that more credible motives may have animated the surrender to slavery he speaks of bloodshed and civil war nobody in february eighteen fifty was suggesting openly such dire possibilities but there is reason to think that some leading southerners were privately hinting them and they may have terrified webster who idolized the union however that may be he gave the fatal blow to his idol it was the fugitive slave law that began the war it could not have passed if webster had refused his support there was a fable in washington that webster and clay were leaving a dinner party both tipsy clay fell on the pavement and webster said old fella i can't pick you up but i will lie down by you i always suspected that the story was invented at the time when the two most famous senators in the nation were seen side by side turning the whole government into a slave-catching institution the anti-slavery men at the north were then few but one of them was a more eloquent man than daniel webster namely wendell phillips who held up before the people of massachusetts the senator of whom they were so proud as himself a slave bought and sold in the south but that shame passed out of sight before the horrors of the slave-hunting era this brought slavery in its most odious form to the door of every family mrs stowe's romance was raised from a passing serial fiction into a photographic portrayal of what was actually going on in the south it was the illustrations engraved by slave hunters that made the enormous circulation of that book emotional sentiment against slavery was turned into rage the southern gentry had a reputation for chivalry but was this seizure of escaping people some of them women chivalry as a matter of fact it was meant as chivalry that is triumph over the north the southern gentleman brought back his fugitive as a trophy he had incurred a personal danger and expense to humiliate the yankees which he would not have incurred to recover a slave from another slave state at the worst of it was that thousands of southerners who held no slaves or who were kind to them were made accessory to those cruel invasions and on the other hand every man and woman in the north was made accessory to the slave hunt 
northern people might not recognize this situation as potential war but i did i had once been a southern fire-eater myself the real issue could not be compromised in the country but in my church it was compromised after daniel webster's body was mouldering in the grave his soul had marched on in some eloquent unitarian preachers notably in dr dewey who had said that rather than divide the union he would send his mother into slavery ten thousand times rather go himself he was a personal friend of webster and possibly had in mind the bloodshed and civil war which frightened his idolized friend he had been the favorite preacher in my washington church where the prevailing sentiment was that expressed in webster's letter to furnace fletcher webster and his wife mr and mrs john l hayes and george j abbott resided under the same roof and generally dined with each other i was at times their guest hayes and abbott were members of my society and nothing could be more charming than these reunions slavery was never touched on and so it was in our homes where all felt themselves to be anti-slavery but regarded the subject as settled i knew that this peace was no peace very soon the disunion which webster's sacrificial unionism had fostered in the north was transferred to the capital congress met in december eighteen fifty five amid fatal conditions during the two months struggle for the speakership i was often in the house of representatives and felt that the evenly balanced forces represented a new north and a new south that had no respect for each other that the hostility between them was not political but religious and that they could not meet except for an exchange of affronts because the real issue could not be discussed the constitution having decided that uncle tom should remain held to service the anti-slavery religion and the pro-slavery religion had no governmental tribunal before which it could be settled whether he should be free but must fight a duel of eyes and nose as to whether he should be a slave in one locality or in another the mere political view of slavery which framed the constitution in seventeen eighty seven and the compromise of eighteen fifty had surpassed the moral issue with the pulpit plea render unto caesar the things that are caesar's and unto god the things that are god's but now a generation had arrived in both north and south which declared the negro does not belong to caesar but to god god by his providence and by his word has decreed the negro's slavery said the new south god by his conscience and the declaration of independence demands his freedom said the new north 
these voices i heard behind the combatants disputing about the superficial incidents of their impasse still small voices as yet audible only in the distance north and south but thunder laden for the meeting of their rival gods face to face what the anti-slavery men in congress did not realize was that there was a genuine pro-slavery religion and that a defeat in congress could not affect it otherwise than to render it more fanatical as a virginian i knew this and i knew also that there could be no peace until the anti-slavery conscience was free from all complicity with slavery moreover the very fact that the constitution foreclosed direct practical action against slavery where it existed rendered it imperative that every unofficial anti-slavery man should deal with the subject so far as slavery was concerned i had not failed to bear my testimony but in the beginning of eighteen fifty six the path before me was complicated by a conviction that the tendencies were towards war which i abhorred more than slavery and by reaching the conclusion that perpetual discord if not war could be escaped only by separation of north and south there was no disunionist in my congregation none in congress probably not one in washington except myself any utterance of that kind could not hope to find a responsive chord in any breast i wrestled with my conscience and knew that the task it demanded would lame me but it was stern for this work i had been nurtured in the south and then developed out of it having written the discourse i submitted it to one person only daniel r goodloe the anti-slavery exile from north carolina an author of ability and judgment he was a member of my church and his satisfaction with the sermon encouraged me the deadlock in congress still appeared hopeless on january twenty seventh eighteen fifty six when the sermon was delivered and a large number of congressmen had been attracted by the subject as announced the one path or the duties of north and south it was at once printed in washington as a pamphlet and had a wide circulation i began with an effort to reassure my congregation declaring that i belonged to no party and would make no partisan statement but as a moral question one affecting all humanity the issue entered my pulpit whether i would or not in this country where by the very nature of the representative system all action and influence of the general government involving as to do the happiness or misery elevation or degradation of men women and children everywhere are shared by every taxpayer and voter 
the moral responsibility resting on each man is tremendous what abject can't it is to say the north has nothing to do with slavery nothing to do with it when the national flag cannot wave over a slave in this district nor in any united states territory who is not a slave by northern as well as by southern consent we can all imagine two men of entire candor and courtesy the one southern and believing slavery right in itself the other northern and believing it wrong coming to an understanding on the subject the common postulate being only that neither must himself do what he believes essentially wrong southerner i believe the institution is best for the white and colored races northerner i make no doubt of your sincerity but would like to discuss it southerner we may do that presently but will you not allow that so long as i hold that opinion you have no right of any kind to illegally interfere with what i hold legally as property northerner i do see that the wrong is not in my detestation of slavery nor my endeavor to inspire you with a like feeling but in my attempting a right thing in a wrong way southerner which is always an unsuccessful way northerner now let us define the other side i believe that slavery is the wild and wicked fantasy that broham called it or the sum of all villainies which wesley pronounced it you are connected with it sincerely and therefore unless you have refused possible light innocently but if i am connected with it i sin southerner certainly northerner if you and i have partnership in a slave your innocence does not exculpate me southerner certainly not northerner if you seek to make me a party to anything which i hold wrong you are guilty even though you believe it right unless you can first persuade me also that it is right southerner it is so northerner and if our firm cannot remain without involving me in this wrong my one path is out of it the firm must be dissolved southerner assuredly now my friends let us approach our national agitations thus simply and quietly the people of the united states are a firm wherever the firm deals with slavery all deal with slavery and the general government has dealt and does now deal with that local institution i appeal to you southerner men it is not the only right thing for those who believe slavery to be sinful 
whether it be really so or not, firmly to declare themselves free from all share in it. If not by your concession, then by whatever means they can, but certainly to do it. But it is said your fathers conceded this and that, and will you not stand by their compact? If there be any compact, and it pledges me to what I feel wrong, shall I be judged by my father's light? But if, in obedience to your conscience, you should injure this union, you would cause great evils, evils greater than slavery. Evils are not sins. We do not wish to rid ourselves of our share in national slaveholding as from an evil disease, but as a moral defection as falsehood or theft would be. Will you imperil the interest of thirty million whites for three or four Africans? The adages reply, the others are very good. Honesty, even in the old Roman sense, embracing all that is just and true to god and man is the best policy right never wronged any man how then is peace which all love and which is for the interest of all to come let st james answer by the wisdom which cometh from above which is first pure then peaceful let every man in the union only feel assured that he stands beneath the sheltering wing of his country a pure man let men cease to see the national flag discolored by what they believe dishonorable and wrong and then be told they have nothing to do with it when each stands with his share in the eye of god and man then shall that unrest which is the sign of the strong lash of conscience cease then shall the word slavery that dirge of our woes never more disorganize congress for it will be beyond congress i pity the northern man who finds repose while his hand is binding slaves still more the southern man who would desire to have him find peace in impurity i know how large a number of pure men in the north this position would offend but i am ready to reiterate that when their personal responsibility for the bondage of a man anywhere is past slavery only addresses them as other evils dr oliver wendell holmes told me that mr justice curtis listened to this sermon and said to him holmes that he was much impressed by it my argument he said was strong and convinced him that the spirit of discord and violence in the country could cease only with the elimination of the issue of moral responsibility a large number of members of congress also heard this sermon among them the honorable horace greeley of the new york tribune horace greeley had a way of closing his eyes when listening to any speech 
and there was a story that some senator passed on the word wake up greeley but the editor was quite awake and the same day telegraphed to the tribune a brief resume of the sermon adding as mr conway is a native of virginia and has spent nearly all his days in slaveholding communities it will hardly be pretended that he does not know what slavery is his discourse was very able as well as fearless and was heard with profound interest by a most intelligent congregation mr conway expects to lose his pastorship because of it i have heard him before speak incidentally in the same vein but never before so clearly and fully two days later horace greeley was assaulted by congressman rust of arkansas as he was leaving the capitol the long struggle for the speakership attended by many menaces ended february second with the election of n p banks he was a poor servile politician really indifferent to the moral issue and i was unable to share the satisfaction of the republicans as they were now beginning to be styled although the wounds received by horace greeley from congressman rust were not so serious as they might have been had the assailant been sober they kept the editor indoors for a time and i used to call on him on february nine he telegraphed to his paper i was mistaken in stating that the reverend mr conway expected to lose the pastorship of the unitarian society here that was the inference of a mutual friend not mr conway's own apprehension he preached as he thought just and has no belief that his society will dismiss him for so doing the committee of the church however in their annual february report deeply deplored my discussing in the pulpit a much vexed and angrily contested political question and this too at a season of great political excitement on february seventeen i gave a discourse which was at once published with the title spiritual liberty taking for my text the words stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith christ hath made us free i appealed to all the historic traditions of intellectual and moral freedom end of chapter seventeen part one recording by simon wainwright